He goes on and says, but this cannot go to infinity because then there would be no first mover and consequently no other mover. There's not a first mover, nothing can move. And then he finally concludes, therefore it's necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name of God. It's one of the most historic, oldest pieces of apologetics. The unmoved mover, the idea that there has to be a first cause. You, you can try to reduce every theory of how the universe got here, but eventually you're going to get to something that you can't reduce without someone putting it there. Well, this morning we want to talk about the unmoved mover, God himself, and why it matters that we believe as Christians that he is the creator of all things. Why that matters to us as human beings, why that matters to us as we understand the world around us, and why that actually matters to the rest of the Bible and to the gospel itself. But before we do that, again, we have to acknowledge our presuppositions, the things that we assume about the world as we approach the Bible and ask these questions. And one of the things I think you have to begin to really wrestle with, those of you who love science, and I do too, is that science, like all forms of thought, has limitations. It simply does, and it has limitations because we, as human beings, are limited. And that is just true. We do not have limitless knowledge. We do not have limitless um, ability. We do not have a limitless way that we can view the history of the world across years and centuries and millennia. Our lives are too short. So we are limited. Therefore, science is limited. I told this story, I don't know, about five or six years ago, uh, and some of you may have been here, maybe remember this, but uh, one night, I think we were on vacation, and I came across a Netflix documentary called Particle Fever. And Particle Fever actually won a ton of awards about its storytelling, and it's about what's the so-called God particle, or the Higgs boson. What is, if that's true, everything came from one a beginning piece of matter, dense matter, then what is that particle? The smallest particle that you can reduce all of existence down to. It's theoretically called the Higgs boson. And some of you who are from Waxahachie may uh, be aware of this more than others, uh, that we at one point were actually trying to build a collider deep down underneath subterranean in Waxahachie of all places, to try to discover this, and of course, they ran out of money. The government decided this is a total waste of time and effort and resources, and they shut it down. I wonder, can you still go down there? After this, we should go find out. Um, what's left in those catacombs? And so the French and the Swiss picked it up. And on the border of France and uh, kind of that Swiss area, they built a large, what's called a large Haldron Collider and began to do experiments trying to reduce everything down to this tiny particle. And in great storytelling, they're interviewing basically two camps of thought. And one camp of, of physicists believe that everything has then come from this one particle through great order. That everything has been very orderly and systematic and now everything has come from it. It's called supersymmetry. And then there's another camp of physicists who think that everything came from that particle through nothing but chaos. 
and it's called the chaos theory. Uh, it's called multiverse. Those of you who are Marvel fans kind of play with this idea, right? The idea of the multiverse. And theoretically, through math, what they've basically come up with is that depending on the size, the mass of this tiny particle, whatever they find, that if it's around 115 giga electron volts, that supports the theory of supersymmetry. And if it came out to be 140 giga electron volts, it would support chaos and multiverse. And so the race was on to figure out what is the size of this particle, and it will prove which theory. And in great storytelling, the documentary goes all the way to the end, and finally they're able to theoretically, through this collider, get an idea of what the size of the Higgs boson is. And do you know what the size is? Yeah, it's right smack in the middle. <laughs> and supports neither theory. <laughs> And you see at the end, these, these physicists being interviewed, they're all just kind of like both dejected, but also kind of in awe. And you think, science has limits, and God has a sense of humor. We're limited in what we can understand through science, and yet I do think that science can tell us a lot. Because through science, we are actually interacting with what theologians call general revelation. That what God has revealed to us in his creation. And I actually believe that science and faith are not incompatible. Because as believers, as we engage science, we actually can see evidences that actually be confirmed by what theologians also call as special revelation. Special revelation would be God's specially revealed character and nature through his word. But you see, special revelation, the word, and general revelation, the world, support one another. You cannot understand general revelation. You cannot understand our world without special revelation. You cannot understand our world without the word of God. You can't. But I would also tell you that you can't fully appreciate God's word without really understanding the world around you. Because God's word even uses the world and God's creation to reveal itself to us. To explain to us who we are and what we are like. These things God has given us to support one another. But the word must be our guide in interpreting the world around us. And before we get into Genesis, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. This is Romans 1. In Romans 1, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now listen to this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, listen to this. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. Brothers, the Apostle Paul this morning is telling us that we are without excuse because God has revealed himself to us in the world and also his word. And so this morning we're going to go to his word. We have a lot of ground to cover. And we're going to look at what, how we are to think about the creation story in Genesis 1. 
Now, you've got Genesis 1 there on your sheet. I want you to listen to just that first section. And then, rather than reading the whole thing to you, I'm just going to repeat a few things on the way down throughout that paragraph. The first section begins like this. We looked at it last week. It's not on your sheet, but it says, In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, that is on your sheet. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. That is the first day of creation. What I want you to notice are some general observations that then you can see with each day of creation. Notice that God speaks. We talked about that last week. Presence of the word, capital W, Jesus himself, the Son. Colossians tells us that God created everything through Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. I think we see Jesus here, the word, and the speech of God creating all things. God said, let there be light. And then notice that God saw that the light was good. This becomes the refrain or the chorus of creation. That after each thing that God made, God sees that it is good, and that is incredibly important. We'll talk more about that at the very end. And then after God sees and declares that these things are good, we then have this pattern with each day. At the end, we see there was evening and there was morning the first day. In the second section, we'll see there was evening and there was morning the second day, and so on and so on and so on. And what I want you to see is that there is a highly structured way that this has been written for us. Things that are repeated, and when we see things repeated in the Bible, we should take notice. That chorus, it was good. Very important. Morning and evening, each day, all leading up to the Sabbath. A day of rest for God. Going before us in rest to give us an understanding of what our Sabbath rest will look like. My wife Jenny and I were talking about this last night, and she reminded me that as the women studied this, one of the things they pointed out is that Adam's first day after he was created was what? A day of rest. The Sabbath. How deeply important it is to understand that we were created to work and to rest. We'll talk more about that in a little bit as well. Now, as you look at these general observations, there's one more thing I want to point out before we look at this, and it's this. How are we to understand this? How are we to understand these six days of work of creation and this seventh day of rest? How are we supposed to understand the creation week? And to answer this question, theologians have worked and labored and spilt ink for centuries, and an, not that long ago, truthfully, um, back in 2000, so what, just a little over 20 years ago, our own denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, did a report 
on the various views of how we are to understand this creation week. And what this report tried to do was to delineate some differences between what would be an orthodox view of creation and then what would be various views of orthodox Christianity that would be allowed within our denomination here. I know some of you are Presbyterian, some of you aren't, but I think this is actually a very helpful document. It's one of the best things that we as a denomination have written. You can go and find it online. You can just Google PCA Creation Report. It's about 90 pages, well worth your time. This morning, what I'd like to do briefly is I'd like to go over several of those views with you in three categories. And then at the end, I want to talk about what these views have in common, what it means for us if you call yourself a Christian this morning, and particularly if you call yourself an Orthodox or Bible-believing Christian, what it is that we is essential to us to believe, and then most importantly, why it matters. And I'm going to do all this in about 15 minutes, okay? So I want you to listen very quickly um, and intently and then send you to your tables to discuss. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, my goal this morning is um, in some ways to stir the pot and for you to wrestle with these things at your table. But at the end, I do want to show you quite plainly why there are certain things that as Christians we must believe and why it matters. So the first view is this. It's often called the calendar day view. The calendar day view views uh, each of the days as a 24-hour literal day. That's why it's often called the literal view of the creation week or the historical view. It's often called the historical view because throughout history, this is one of the oldest views. It's a pretty simple explanation to understand this view. It doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics, which in some ways many would say that supports it because it supports a very plain literal reading of the Bible. So if you want to understand what's the literal view, it speaks for itself. This view would say, look, it says day, day means day. A day is 24 hours, a week is a week. If the Bible says that creation was created in six days and God rested on the seventh, then that's exactly what happened. We need not try to explain it further than that. The Bible says what it says. Proponents of this view would support this for lots of different ways, and there's lots of strengths. And with each one of these, I'm going to name the strengths and then some of their limitations or weaknesses. And of course, there are a lot of strengths to this view, not the least of which is that this view would argue that um, the plain reading of the text is the most, as the best reading that would support that God's word is true, that it's inerrant, uh, that it can be believed. It also would support the idea that everything that we read in the creation account is historical. In other words, this is not myth, as we talked about last week. These are not myths. This is real history. There was a real Adam and Eve. They were specially created by God. And then each thing that we read in creation really happened. And this is important because, and as we'll talk about this more, the rest of the Bible actually looks back on these verses and these chapters in order to understand the rest of redemptive history. So let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Adam as the first of humanity 
in order to support his teaching of Jesus as the one who goes before us in our resurrection. Real quickly, let me read that for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also is those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What is Adam doing? He is going back to the creation story as a real historical event, saying just as God created Adam out of dust, as the man of dust, God has now given us the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who now goes before us in the resurrection. In other words, you could say if there is no Adam, there is no last Adam. And this isn't the only place in the New Testament where over and over and over again, the New Testament assumes the historicity of Genesis. And so the strengths of the literal view would say, well, this is the plainest way that you can read it and support a historical view of creation. Now, the literal view also has some limitations, not the least of which has to do with science. And of course, if you are a good Bible-believing Christian, you might, hey, I wait a minute, I don't want science to tell me how to think about the Bible. But you still have to wrestle with what science seems to say and at least have an answer of why you would support this view over and against what science says. And many theologians who support the calendar day view have plenty of answers, and you can go read them, and they're good and thoughtful. But that would be one weakness. The other weakness, as we'll see in the next several weeks, is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have some differences. Now, critics would call these um, contradictions. I don't think they're contradictions at all, but they are differences because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are telling the same story from different vantage points for different reasons. But some of these are more difficult to explain with a literal view. So that's the first view. The second view of creation has to do with how do you think of the word day? It's known as the day-age view. And what's similar to the day-age view, as with, is with the literal view, is that the day-age view would also believe in the errancy of God's word, it's true, and the historicity of every one of these events, that this is historical. And many theologians, actually, conservative Orthodox theologians, have held to this view throughout history. Most recently, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, Dre Gresham Machen, and E.J. Young, all staunch advocates of the inerrancy of God's word, all who believe in what's called the day-age view. And it has to do with how do you understand the word day. In Hebrew, it's the word yom. And you can see in the Old Testament instances where that is used to describe an age, just like we would still use today. You could think, oh, back in my day, right? Well, you're not talking about a literal 24-hour day. You're talking about an indefinite period of time. The Bible does this too. I'll give you an example. This is from Isaiah 11, 10 through 11. It says, in that day. In that day. As Isaiah is writing in that day, he's not talking about a 24-hour day. 
In fact, I would argue, actually, a plain reading of the text would make you would understand. Well, no, it's in that day, in that age, in that indefinite time and space. So proponents of this would say, well, look, this helps us explain all kinds of things, but we're not using science to get here. We're using our understanding of the word day. And they would argue that, in fact, there are those who have held to this view well before any of our modern discoveries in science. That this is not about trying to weave the Bible into Darwinian thought. In fact, as of each one of these views, and I'll talk about this more at the very end, they would all argue against any kind of evolution. Even the idea of theistic evolution, each one of these views would say, actually is not supported by the Bible. Again, I'll talk about that more at the very end as we talk about how all these things come together. So this idea of each day being an age would, though, represent an old earth view, whereas a literal view tends to be, right, a young earth view. How old is the earth? How long has it been here? If you're in the literal camp, it's very young. As you get into a day-age view, it's old. Proponents of day-age would those say, we believe in the history of each one of these events. We believe in the sequence of each one of these events. We just simply believe that the word day is referring to an age. Now, there are strengths to this. The history, the history of Adam and Eve, um, a way to synthesize, at least explain some scientific evidence. But there's also weaknesses. And some of those weaknesses have to do with, well, how do you explain the issue of death happening before the fall as these ages are extrapolated out? And then how do you reconcile some of these details again of Genesis 1 and 2, apparent contradictions and how they are different, which has given rise to a third category of views. And it's the last one I want to cover with you just briefly. We've talked about the literal view, <coughs> reading literally, and the day-age view, the third category would not be literal, but literary. Not literal, but literary. A literary view of Genesis 1. And in these views, the idea is that we are meant to read Genesis 1 with a literary understanding. And to ask the question, what did Moses, the author, originally intend with how he was writing these verses. Jack Collins, one of the proponents of one of these views, I'll talk more about in just a second. He's a professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He points out that there is a difference in the way that we think about the word literal in a literalistic sense and in the way that the author originally intended. There's a literalistic way that we think about the word literal, literalistically, just word for word, plain, but there's also a way that we understand the word literal, and particularly as those who are theologians are those who are um, historians in writing and grammar in English. The idea of interpretation in a literal sense would mean you're trying to understand literally what the author intended as they wrote it in their own words. And to do that, we have to go back to ancient Near Eastern texts ancient Near Eastern history, to try to, as best we can, put ourselves in the situation of the original authors of the Bible. And that is a tall order. And so from this idea, there's a couple different ways you can think about this. One is known as the framework view. And it says that Genesis 1 is actually a literary device with each day. 
that what we are reading here is a highly patterned section of prose. It's not poetry, it is prose, but it's what's referred to as elevated prose. It is highly structured and therefore unique as you compare it to the rest of the scriptures, and yet we can see similar things in other ancient Near Eastern writings, that this is a rhetorical device that Moses is using in order to tell us about creation. And so the days themselves are not to be taken literalistically. They are to be taken in a literary sense. Each day, a way of describing the first three days, the order that God put into the universe, and the kingdoms that he had set up, and then the last three days, all of the things that he filled that created order with all of the kings that he placed within their various kingdoms. Now, strengths of this view, again, though um, they've often uh, had the criticism that there's no way then you can say this is historical events or that you believe the Bible is inerrant, proponents of this view would say that's actually the exact opposite of what we would say. Uh, everything in this is completely historical and every word is true. In the same way that any piece of literature in the Bible or in any genre doesn't mean that it's untrue. So think of the Psalms, right? And the idea, let's just think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but he is planted by streams of water. Is the psalmist saying that we should literally put our feet into the ground next to a stream? No, it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean it's not true. What God's word is saying isn't historical or factual. It's just using a metaphor in order to explain something, right? And we do this implicitly throughout the Bible. The, what these proponents of the framework hypothesis would say, the same thing goes with Genesis 1. It doesn't mean it's not true or not historic. It's just a way of telling history and a way of conveying truth. Other strengths would say they believe in a um, literal, uh, an Adam and Eve, and the fall, and every part of the creation story as history, and that uh, these historical facts support the rest of the Bible. Uh, weaknesses are things like, uh, and I think this is probably the strongest, is places in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that don't seem to assume any kind of framework like this. I'll give you an example, Exodus 20, verse 11, you can write that down. Exodus 20, verse 11 plainly says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in other words, here's Moses explaining the Sabbath to us and seems to refer to creation, but not in a framework sense, but hey, look, he did it in six days and he rested on the Sabbath. So what do you do with that? If you are a proponent of the framework view, you have to have an explanation for that, which has now given rise to a more recent view known as the analogical view. It's also a literary view, a view that says we are to read Genesis 1 in a literary sense. It's similar to the framework view in that each one of these days is really a rhetorical device, <clears throat> but it's not looking at these days in a framework. It's actually using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the analogical view would say that God's creation week in Genesis 1 is an analogy that is referring to our work week and the Sabbath. And that what Moses is doing is he's assuming 
that we as his created beings deeply understand that we are to work for six days and then rest on the Sabbath, which I would argue we don't understand that anymore. But if that is deeply ingrained into what you understand life to be, work for six days, rest on the Sabbath, then what Moses is doing is he's using an anthropomorphic image to explain God's work to us. We are called to work and rest. Here's God's work, and he rested. And all of this helps us not only understand creation, but also helps us understand the importance of the Sabbath. Now, this view is difficult for us, as I said, because we don't keep the Sabbath very well anymore, certainly not as they did in those days. So it seems to not make as much sense to us. But the strengths are, again, it's historical. Everything is historical. Everything is inerrant. Everything is true. Adam and Eve were real people. The fall is a real event. But Moses is describing this through the lens of work and Sabbath. Of course, weaknesses would have to do with, really, that this is a fairly new development in theology. Um, And that, again, much like the framework view, you have to kind of wrestle with, particularly if you're coming from a more literalistic view, How are we to understand these things with the rest of the Bible? Okay, that was a lot. But I want you to think in terms of three categories. Literalistic, kind of almost a a hybrid day age in some ways. Everything else is completely as it says. It's just what do you do with that one word day? And then looking at all of it from a more literary view. And what I want you to do this morning in your tables just briefly is I want you to wrestle with that a little bit. Talk about it. But here's what I want you to leave with. Regardless of any of those three categories of views, this study report, this paper made it clear that to claim the historicity and to claim the truth of the Bible and to call yourself, if you desire to be an orthodox Bible-believing Christian, then there's a few similarities in all these views that we must leave with, and that's this. God's word is inerrant, and every word is true, whether you read it literalistically or you have to have a good reason, but in a literary way, it's all true. Adam and Eve were real people, and that matters as we saw because that then connects throughout all of redemptive history. Just as sin came into the world through one Adam, life has come into the world through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Deeply important that we understand these connections. But it also helps us understand that we have a creator who intentionally and intelligently made all things. And there have been many well-meaning Christians, and I respect them, who try to synthesize evolution and the Bible. And they would call themselves um, proponents of theistic evolution. That evolutionary theory must be true, and who's to say whether or not God did it that way? But I think as you read the Bible, regardless of your view, you will see that God intentionally and intelligently made all things, not in an indirect way, but in a direct way. And that is important, not only in our view of creation, but in our view of God's sovereignty right here and right now. God is, just as he was intimately and intelligently, sovereignly creating all things, he is now intimately and intelligently and sovereignly sustaining all things. And he is not doing in an impersonal way, but in a personal way with all of us. And so as you leave and as you discuss these things briefly, 
I want you to leave with this. We have a creator who made you and made all things. And not only that, but he originally saw that it was good. It's good not because it's intrinsically good. It's good because he is and he made it. In the beginning, God created all things to be good. And that is the beginning of our story. The next several weeks, we'll see how that story will change quickly and tragically. But I want you to know the beginning of our story is not the fall. It's creation. And particularly next week, as Pete teaches, we'll look at how God created us in his image. Let me pray for you, send you to your tables. If you have questions, you come talk to me afterwards. Lord, I pray now that you'd be with these guys. I know I went long this morning. I had much to talk about. So I pray that you would give them an extra measure of grace as they discuss these things and give them some time to do so as well. We know that in all of this, once again, we want to leave here with worship. Perhaps we may leave with more questions than we have answers, but may these questions lead us to our knees and to see you as the creator of all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.